continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Uh, This is God's word. Uh, Brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, oftentimes what happens when we're faced with a task that's just overwhelming or just monumental, our first reaction, uh, admittedly, is, unless you're a superman, uh, to shy away from it because it's just too big for us. And it's somewhat understandable. We don't really know where to start because it's so huge. But then what we do after we see this, uh, this task, what we then do is resign ourselves to abandoning it, not because the task itself is unnecessary or not worth doing, but because we tell ourselves things um, like we're too small to contribute to it. We convince ourselves that you know, we'd be in over our heads if we uh, start performing this task. This, this thing is it's just too big for our britches. We can't allocate uh, the necessary resources to it. Someone else who's better equipped than I am ought to tackle this, uh, this, uh, this need, take up this mantle, something like that. Many Christians apply this to the work of missions and evangelism, uh, particularly to, to the task of evangelism, and that's for many reasons. There's lots to do. There's lots to say. What if I say something or, or that is wrong? What if they ask something that I can't answer? I don't know how to answer this. Or how about a little bit more personally? Uh, will I lose this relationship if I start speaking about the things of Christ to uh, my friend? Uh, what if I mess up? Uh, where do I start? I've never been through a class on evangelism. I've never, as a matter of fact, seen it done. And there's many other questions and comments like this that make it uh, an overwhelming task. And again, that's understandable uh, because all of these questions and all of these points are valid. You know, if we actually take inventory, uh, all of these questions are rather intimidating to the work of uh, evangelism. I have a book downstairs uh, that the title of it kind of eludes me at the moment. I think it's called uh, Making Evangelism slightly less difficult. Now, I think that's a, that's a pretty good uh, title for that because it's a monumental task. You know, where, So where do I start and things like this? But honestly, there's a saying that goes like this. How do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. That's how you eat an elephant. One bite at a time. In other words, you progress in an enormous task like missions and evangelism little by little. And that's what we're going to be continuing to look at tonight. Last time uh, for our outdoor service, we uh, considered the why of missions and evangelism. Just why do we do missions and evangelism? We saw that having your purpose to be crystal clear and down pat will at least orient you to this practice. We've got to figure out the why of missions and evangelism uh, before anything else. And we saw that, among many other reasons... Uh, It's because the why of missions and evangelism is because of the mission, the mandate, and the means that we do missions and evangelism in the first place. And tonight we'll be uh, considering the how of missions and evangelism. In other words, what basic principles should we be operating with? 
Now, what are the basic broad parameters of how we should be uh, doing missions and evangelism? What should we be operating with? Before getting to the what of missions and evangelism, which is where we consider specifically what to say, what should be the manner in which we do it? And of course, as last time and this time and doubtless uh, next time, just in a very uh, small three-part uh, series, uh, basically uh, done in, in the service to the Boardwalk Chapel, uh, there's a lot more that can be said in any one sermon. There's far more than what we're going to be looking at here. But these four characteristics uh, that are printed in your bulletin, how are we to be doing the work of missions and evangelism? Well, firstly, with confidence. Secondly, with readiness. Thirdly, uh, with faithfulness. And then fourthly, with joy. And we come to the first of these three, these, uh, these characteristics, these four characteristics, that we do missions and evangelism with confidence. And we come to this passage that we just read, uh, that we're considering, uh, not only to, in this passage, but the book of Colossians as a whole to draw this out. Colossians, the book of Colossians is a book that is written by Paul uh, around A.D. 62 uh, or so, when he is in prison in Rome. And he writes to a church that's in a city called Colossae, which he's never gone to. But he's heard that there's some sort of heretical teaching going on there. Uh, it's uh, the scholars uh, debate uh, exactly what's called the Colossian heresy. Uh, there's a lot of uh, different things that it could have been. In my mind, it's most probable that there were people there who were teaching a mix of some kind of local uh, pagan folk religion right alongside with Jewish mysticism. And this would explain, if you have your Bibles open, uh, what you see in chapter 2, verse 16, if you have it open, uh, and following that there is a mention of Sabbath keeping, which is in God's law, that's the fourth commandment, right alongside that, right next to it. Uh, a verse or two later, you see uh, that he is deriding them over the worship of angels, which of course is a violation against God's law. But the reason why our witness must be characterized by confidence forms the very thing that this letter addresses. Because if you know anything about mysticism, if you know anything about pagan uh, folk religion, especially in this, uh, this time, those hardly ever call for confidence. You know, you, you don't pin confidence uh, on mysticism or paganism or something like that. And yet, what's Paul doing in Colossians? He presents Jesus... Uh, as the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. He is, as a matter of fact, the, the, the Lord of all things visible and invisible. And that through his blood on the cross, he has reconciled us to God definitively. That's a confidence that you will not find in any iteration of mysticism, even down to this very day. In him, he says, the fullness of God uh, is pleased to dwell. In him, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge find their home much unlike this mysticism, we can know God. Now, of course, we can't comprehend him, and we, know, and we can't know everything that there is to know about God. Of course, that's a given. But unlike mysticism, we know what we're talking about. And first, uh, we need to be confident in God who has his electing purpose. He elects according to his purpose. And we can be confident about this uh, the how of missions and evangelism starts here with the electing purpose of God. 
Last time we looked at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 14, which carries this theme very strongly. Because we know that missions and evangelism starts in the mind of God, we have to proceed with confidence that his purposes will stand. What does this mean? It means that your labors are never in vain. Your prayers are never in vain. All of your activities, all of your abilities to display Jesus never go unnoticed either by God or by man. They are never wasted. They're all a part of the tapestry of events that's happening in people's lives. And about 99.9% of those events that are happening in other people's lives, you have no idea about. Neither will I in this age. You will never know the extent of your impact in terms of how you display Christ to others. You never know what God will do with that. God has a purpose in election that we can be confident in because he is the prime mover. This means that we can also be confident then in the means by which God has given in order to do missions and evangelism. Not only has God elected Uh, from before the foundations of the world, but he's also given the very means by which his elect are drawn to him. Uh, Now, what are these means? Principally, the word, uh, the spirit, and prayer. Uh, More about one of these in just a little bit. But God has intended to save his people. And we can be confident in that. And so God has given the means by which to draw them, which is to say that we ought not to spurn the delivery of these means. We ought not to think of them as something that is small or will not ever have an impact. In other words, have you ever displayed Jesus to someone? Have you ever shown Jesus to someone by word or by deed? That's how God works. Have you ever prayed for the unbeliever? Uh, Have you ever lifted the unbeliever up in your petitions? God, would you save um, my friend, my brother, my son, my grandson, my granddaughter? We just prayed, as a matter of fact, just moments ago for someone to come to repentance, did we not? God works with this, and you can be definitely sure of this. You can be certain that God works through this. He's given us the means by which the elect will come to him, so we can be confident in the use of the means as well. And thirdly, not only are we to be confident in God's electing purpose and the means that we're given by which the elect are drawn, but we're also confident in his success in spite of our failures and weaknesses. I say this because all of us have faults, all of us have weaknesses, all of us have uh, shortcomings. Uh, For Paul, in the letter of Colossians, it was that he was in prison, right? Uh, At the time of writing this, he's uh, chained to perhaps other prisoners, or however it is that, uh, uh, that he was imprisoned at his time. In fact, he's very quick to point out his degraded and rather humiliating position. Take a look at the very last verse of the book of Colossians where he says, remember my chains. He points out his weaknesses. He points out his shortcomings. Imagine how easy then it would be for someone in that time to discredit him. Oh yeah, your your leader? He's in prison right now, and you still have the audacity, have the temerity to believe what he believes? Are you serious? Your leader is in prison right now, and you still want to hold to what he believes. 
But we're confident that God works through our weaknesses. There's many times in which God works in spite of us. Uh, in, in other words, that can be a biography of most of our lives, right? <laughs> the, the title to our biography, How God Has Worked in Spite of Tony Dominic, right? Uh, that is basically the edifice that we can put on our, uh, our gravestones. That was what we could put on our tombstones. This is how God has worked in spite of all of my weaknesses and shortcomings and failures, which is to say that we can have confidence that God works his purposes in spite of our many weaknesses. And there's a lot more to say about this here. Uh, perhaps this is its own sermon series, but we're confident in God who elects. We're confident in the means that he's given. We're confident that he works in spite of our many Failures, many weaknesses. Moving on to our second point, how do we do the work of missions and evangelism? With readiness. With readiness. The church at Colossae was most likely started by a man who heard Paul, as Paul stayed in Ephesus for a couple of years. Uh, Acts chapter 19, Paul preaches in a lecture hall uh, called the Lecture Hall of Tyrannus. In verse 10, Acts chapter 19, verse 10, says that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. In the beginning of this book, chapter 1, verse 7, we see that a man named Epaphras was most likely the one who imported the gospel from Ephesus to Colossae, and he even serves his prison sentence with Paul in Rome while this letter is being written. Uh, More about him and his faithfulness later, but Epaphras demonstrates the essence of all that missions and evangelism stands for, all the works of missions and evangelism, which can be applied locally, uh, that is, to your neighbors, as well as globally to the Paysons in Uganda or in Uruguay, uh, to our missionaries and missionary associates in Uganda, all over the world, uh, that it be done with faithfulness. I'm sorry, with readiness. Firstly, we see that, uh, that we have the readiness of heart, Uh, which is to say a couple of things about the heart. We have readiness of heart, uh, namely that our hearts must be changed by the very gospel that we proclaim in order to do the work of missions and evangelism. In other words, uh, that we are the ones who have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. We're the ones who've been given a new heart in order to do this work. That's, That's part of the readiness of heart that we're to have. It's also to say, in terms of the readiness of heart, uh, that we have something of a burden that's given to us to do the work of missions and evangelism, that we have a burden, our, our new heart, our new regenerated heart has been given this burden to do the work of missions and evangelism. I say this because one of the hallmarks, one of the identifying marks of the Christian is whether or not they're burdened for the lost. If they have no burden for the lost, then they themselves are lost. It doesn't matter if they've been uh, in a church for many years. If they have no desire at all for the advance of the gospel, then they have not been changed by it. Not that they themselves have to be the ones to deliver it. Of course, that's for next time. But the work of missions and evangelism can only be done with readiness of heart. Secondly, the work of missions and evangelism needs to be done with readiness of mind. With readiness of mind. That is, a mind that's been trained to align itself with the truths of the heart. That is, the Christ that you've experienced and who's made himself known, you must also be trained under through the means by which he trains you, namely by his word, 
spirit, uh, the spirit and prayer uh, with his people in his place of worship. It's a mind that can locate the essence of the gospel with, with some ease and fluidity at a moment's notice because the gospel is the very air that they breathe. Uh, one phrase that I have is kind of a quick draw uh, to explain the gospel is this three-word phrase. You can memorize it. It's very easy. The youth uh, certainly know of this. It's the phrase, God saves sinners. And then all I do is just turn to Ephesians chapter 2. God saves sinners, Ephesians chapter 2. If you're ever looking for a quick draw phrase, I've used it with the, with the Mormons I don't know how many times, that's a really good phrase to, to use. That is, unpack that. Meditate on this, uh, this three-word phrase. Tell me who God is. Uh, tell me, what does saves mean? What, is, uh, what, what does that mean? Uh, tell me, unpack the word sinners as those whom God saves. We have a readiness, verse 6, to let your speech be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you know how to answer each one. And this also means that we have a readiness of will. We have a readiness of will. That is, we're to have a desire to show Christ to the lost, a desire for the lost to come to Christ, a, a desire to, for them to be a part of this very church. We have readiness of will, verse 5, to walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. In the original, uh, that phrase literally says, redeeming the time. In the Tony Dominic translation, I'll say, opportunizing the time so that it would not be lost on other unimportant things. The work of missions and evangelism takes readiness of will to step forward in the advance of the gospel. And of course, there's a lot more to say about this. But the work of missions and evangelism is to be done with readiness. Thirdly, the work of missions and evangelism is to be done with faithfulness. It's to be done with faithfulness. So we have confidence, we have readiness, and now we add faithfulness to the mix. The heresy that was at Colossae came from a worldview that was entirely baseless and arbitrary. It rendered a lifestyle that was totally foundationless and led to the abuse of the body. And we can also say the abuse of the soul as well. There's not much that you could pin your theological claims to and whatever it was that you uh, wanted to do or not do really could be touted as though it were a part of worship. This is why in chapter 2, verse 18, Paul says that they who hold to this heresy are puffed up without reason, by his sensuous mind. That is a mind that's only activated by what it feels, what the heart feels at the time. It's purely a sensuous mind. It's without reason, totally controlled by the senses, and not much more. And then he contrasts that in the next verse, in verse 19, by saying that they, these, uh, these heretics, are not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body grows with the growth that is from God. Uh, there is a faithfulness to the Christian witness that is entirely unlike the faithfulness that is akin to the world. Firstly, in that we're faithful with the things of God. We're faithful with the things of God. And this is a rather all-encompassing level of faithfulness. We're faithful in seeing things the way God sees them. Faithful with identifying circumstances the way that God identifies those circumstances. Faithful with the use of the means that God has given to be used. And we think of, of course, the use of the word as one of the primary means that we need to be faithful with. 
but let me point to you in this, uh, this passage. Uh, in our passage here, Paul mentions another one of those means in particular, verse 2. He says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it. Think about that. Have, how many of you have, have ever heard, thought about being watchful in prayer, uh, guarding those whom you pray for while you pray for them? Being watchful in prayer with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. Later on, verse 12, uh, Paul says that Epaphras was always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. That is to say that the faithful use of the ordinary means coordinates with the electing purpose of God, which is to say that you have no idea what your prayers are doing. Uh, you have absolutely no idea. I have no idea what your prayers are doing, what the Spirit is doing and lifting those, uh, those prayers of the Father. When you petition God on behalf of the sinner, as we've done just moments ago, what you're doing is you're asking an omnipotent one what, to do what is to him a small thing, a small thing, because he is omnipotent. Nothing is for God any harder than anything else that he does. And some of you who are even sitting here tonight, you know the surplus of the favor of God in prayer. I know this. I know this because you have told me. Uh, we, know that you, we know what happens when you pray for the unbeliever. Some of you tonight are even thinking of someone who you have been praying for who just last, perhaps, week joined a church. Uh, you know the surplus of the favor of God in your prayers and so we're faithful with the things of God. We're faithful with the use of his means. We're faithful in something like prayer. Even though it doesn't look like we're doing anything, we have no idea what's going on uh, in God's omnipotence, his, his, his invisible works. By his spirit, he regenerates the heart. We're also faithful not only with the things of God, but the things of others as well. That is to say that we're faithful with what we're given from others. In other words, we're to have a listening ear, to others. We have, a, we have a willingness to change our view of people as they reveal who they are to us. We're to be intensely perceptive to what they communicate. There's a sense in which we don't represent people in any way that they don't represent themselves. We don't attribute to the unbeliever in our minds or in our words any more or less sin than they display to us. We are faithful with them so that we, verse 6, will know how to answer each person. And by the way, each person. It's supposed to draw your attention uh, to that. There's a faithfulness uh, in this practice that treats everyone as an individual, not as a part of a prefabricated group who we think we know everything about and so we can just give a manufactured answer to this group of people that we think we know everything about. No, we're to be faithful with the things of others. Thirdly, it means that we're to be faithful with the things of ourselves as well. That is to say that we're to be self-aware of our strengths and weaknesses. Every one of us has ministry opportunities. Every one of us has missions and evangelism opportunities and provisions that no one else has. And we're put, we're here, we're, we're told uh, to put our hands to the plow that the Lord has given to us and pray that the Lord would reveal more of ourselves through it for more service in the future. In other words, not all of us are eloquent. Uh, not all of us can contribute to the work of the church to the same degree as everyone else can. Uh, not all of us have a bandwidth to handle confrontation. 
Some of us are positioned for more generosity than others. We're to be faithful with ourselves, which means that we're to know our own gifts and abilities so that we can contribute to the work of the church and to the work of missions and evangelism accordingly. So we do this, we do the work of missions and evangelism with faithfulness to God or others and ourselves as well. And lastly, but certainly not, uh, <laughs> not, not least, not finally at least, we're to do the work of missions and evangelism with joy. We're to do the work of missions and evangelism with joy. We do this with confidence, with readiness, with faithfulness, and with joy. Paul starts the letter of Colossians with a note of thanksgiving that they're in the faith. And that chapter 1, verse 12, that they would endure with patience and with joy. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 24, Paul rejoices in his sufferings for their sake. In chapter 2, verse 4, he rejoices to see the work of the church succeeding. He tells us, chapter 3, verse 14, put on love, which of course you can see the relationship to joy which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Now we're skipping over a lot here, but our passage here, chapter 4, verse 2, Paul tells us to continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Now, there's certainly a lot to be joyful about in this letter and much to be joyful about the work of missions and evangelism as a whole as we think of it. Uh, But firstly, uh, what do I mean by uh, conducting this work with joy? Firstly, that we take joy in that while this work is being performed, while we are doing the work of missions and evangelism, what are we doing? We are reminding ourselves of the gospel that we so desperately need. While this work is being performed, we are reminding ourselves that we need this very gospel, even as we articulate it to the unbeliever. Evangelism is one of those Christian practices in which you're you're, you're a sick person, uh, telling other sick people uh, about the medicine that you yourself are taking. And they really need to start taking it. I mean, it, it's, it's, the, it's the cure for whatever ails you. You know what I'm saying? Uh, that, that's kind of, if you want to think about the work of evangelism in that sort of direction, you're about 75, 90% of the way there. I'm telling uh, sick people the, the kind of medicine that I'm taking, man, you, you need to be taking this to the full dose, man. <laughs> you know, this is, this is something that, uh, that cures everything that, uh, that ails you. It protects you from the world, the flesh, and the devil, which is our greatest enemies in this age. When we do this, we confirm the sufficiency of Christ. We confirm to them and to ourselves the work that he's done in us that brings us safely to God. We remind ourselves that we're caught up in this grand plan of redemption, even as we're telling others about it. So we're to take joy in this, and that we're, this is kind of a self-reminder of sorts. We're also to take joy, then, in being part of the plan and purpose of God. Uh, that is to say, we rejoice in the privilege that it is to be an instrument in the hands of God. This is a great joy. This is one of the reasons that Paul prays, by the way, that God would open, verse 3, open a door for us, for the word to be open, because he takes joy in his ministry. He looks forward to the preaching of the gospel. He looks forward and he rejoices in being part of the plan and purpose of God. Now, of course, we don't have the impact that Paul had, but certainly we're no less significant in the eyes of the Heavenly Father. And so we, we, we rejoice uh, that God would decide to, to use us. If you think of, of, of ourselves, 
you know, puny, uh, fledgling weaklings. We, we mess up about 90% of the time. That God would use us to exhibit the Lord of glory. I mean, what a privilege uh, that it is. Uh, what a joy that we could take. What a grace that's given to us that we can be used in this way. And, and even more, more than this, that God loves using us. That God loves using us. Uh, these puny, fledgling weaklings that we are, this is the way that satisfies God in the plan and purpose of redemption for the proclamation of the gospel. What a grace. What a joy. What a privilege it is to, be, to take part in this. What a joy. We rejoice in being part of the plan and purpose of God in this, in this way. We also take joy then in the use of the means that he's given to do the work of missions and evangelism. In other words, we're given the word and we're given prayer as somewhat of a primary means by which the work of missions and evangelism is to be done. That, that is to say, we don't add to it. Uh, we don't uh, take anything from it. We don't augment these means so that now they're improved. Uh, We don't add anything to increase their sufficiency in our understanding so that now that we've tampered it, it's going to be better after having uh, tampered with it. Uh, No, uh, they're there so that we can use them confidently, readily, faithfully, and then sit back and enjoy the fireworks. Uh, Sit back and just enjoy what God is doing. Take delight in what God does, which doesn't mean necessarily that the guy or girl that you're praying for will definitely come to faith. It could very well mean that God shows you something that you yourself haven't learned, and we can rejoice in this as well. But all around, the work of missions and evangelism starts with joy, it's conducted with joy, and it ends with joy. So we've seen how the work of, uh, we've seen the how of the work of missions and evangelism, that the manner in which we do this is, as it's written here, with confidence, with readiness, with faithfulness, and with joy. There's a lot more to be said. Lots more to be said with this, but I'll close with just a couple of applications tonight. Firstly, as we take a look at these characteristics, take a look at those, uh, those characteristics in your bulletin for a second. We realize that these are the characteristics that the Lord Jesus had when living out the work of missions and evangelism, being himself the evangelist par excellence and the very good news that he and we proclaim. He's the one who acted with pure confidence, even we can say certainty, because he was the incarnate God walking amongst us, having been sent from from the Father on a mission that he accomplished perfectly uh, the whole way. He's the one who is altogether ready. He has stood at the ready to be sent on this mission to win you to himself, which he's done by changing your hearts, to love the things that he loves. He's the one who is perfectly faithful, uh, both to his father, to himself, and to you. And he's shown his faithfulness to us in taking our sins from us and giving us his righteousness. He's perfectly faithful to us. He's the one who's done this with complete joy. Yes, of course, as we know, Hebrews 12, spurning the shame of the cross, uh, but rejoicing and bringing many sons to glory. Christ is the one who entails all this and far, far more. He is the trailblazer in the work of missions and evangelism and the administration of the new covenant. This is your Jesus. 
This is your Jesus who has won you to himself by these very characteristics, and we mimic this to a smaller degree in our work of missions and evangelism. Secondly, be willing to invite and embrace people who are not like you into this church. Be willing to invite and embrace people who are not like you into this church. Now, a word of caution here. I said this church. I did not say our church. I said this church. I didn't say our church as though it belongs to us and we get to set the cultural trend here because we don't take kindly to people who don't look like us and who don't act like us. I said this church. If the work of missions and evangelism has its way, the church runs the risk of having people who don't fit the mold. They run the risk of having people darken the doors of the church who, uh, shall we say, have a colored past and aren't as polished, let's say. And we need to learn how to invite them, how to embrace them. I'll say this now, this is a struggle in the OPC. But if we're really serious about the work of missions and evangelism, if we are, verse 5, to walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the times, knowing how you ought to answer each person, then we need to be prepared for what happens when the Spirit uses the word and the prayers of the saints and regenerates hearts their hearts, and works faith in them. I mean, the church should be the most welcoming, uh, the most understanding, the most grace-giving, the most hospitable organization in the world. And the work of missions and evangelism sets up for us a a litmus test to know how we're doing in these areas. So be willing to invite and embrace people who are not like you into this church, if nothing else, because God invited and embraced us. And if you know anything about the holiness of God... It's that we are not like him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you.